This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. My guest is Liz Cook, author of this fabulous new book, Stalking Wild Soas, Embodying Your Core Intelligence. For over 40 years, Liz Cook has been educating professionals and laypeople about the psoas and dissolving the biomechanical notion of the body and reconceptualizing human beings as biologically intelligent, self-organizing, and self-healing. Liz Cook, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm fascinated with many subjects relating to this, including neurobiology and consciousness. And this book takes all of that to a deeper, integrative level within our own being and body. And I absolutely loved this book. Oh, good to hear. 
I found myself more excited about this book than probably any book I've read in a long time. Thank you very much. I appreciate hearing that. And a lot of it read to me like mystical poetry. Mm. Certainly not what I expected in a book about a core muscle of the body and one that most people probably have never even heard of. Right. Around 40 years ago, I studied various forms of body work and Taoist energy healing, which I found fascinating. So when I saw the title of your book, I was intrigued. And you have a very unique view of the psoas, much less as a muscle and much more as a living, fluid intelligence at the core of our being that is expressive and even emotional. I'd love for you to begin by talking about the way you see the psoas and how you've come to know it and experience it in those ways. Well, my journey has been a deepening of somatic or what's called kinesthetic sensory system. The word that's popular now is interoception. I use the word proprioception, but the kinesthetic intelligence. So that is why I speak about the psoas the way I do. It's not an intellectual research project. It was a deepening of listening and experiencing that brought me that information. And I appreciate what you said about the book because for me to write that book, I actually took time out of teaching and I spent the first month dreaming the book. So I really allowed this biointelligence to tell its own story, so to speak. Because I can be conceptual and I can be intellectual and I can kind of drive a point home verbally. I didn't want to come from that place. I wanted to come from this actual intelligence that I feel is deep within my own being. So with that said, SOAS becomes a messenger of the midline. And part of that journey is to no longer use the mechanical model of body. So about 15 years ago, I consciously started focusing on changing the language of body from object to process. And I recognized that when I took a different paradigm, and it took me a while to find the right paradigm, and I use an embryological paradigm, which is scientific and valid and probably more valid than the mechanical model imposed on a human organism. It gave me a framework. It wasn't that I didn't understand it. It was that I didn't know how to explain it to people. And so I had this opportunity once I saw uh, the introduction to embryology. It was like, oh, my God, that's what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. But it really came from deep within myself. Let's talk about the embryological aspect of this and how you define psoas and the process and functioning of of psoas in those terms? Well, we're all under a spell of of the industrial revolution, of reductionist thinking, of looking at body as object, and that's allopathic medicine. And I began the same where everyone else, when I was starting to 
become interested in the kinesthetic system, the somatic experience I was having, and I tried to describe it to someone else, I did the same thing when I wrote my first book, The Seller's Book. I went and looked at anatomy charts, which are dead cadavers, and we're looking at what is movement by looking at dead tissue. And so psoas, from a mechanical model, is the core tissue of your being. And because the mechanical model has no center or core or soul, it is all tissue from the spine forward flexes and all tissue from the spine back extends. So therefore, psoas being in the core of the spine, merging out over the ball and socket joints, is a flexor. But that's not how I experienced it. And so as I kept sensing my own system and trusting that, I recognized it didn't match up and I didn't know why. And, you know, I'd say things like, I don't think the psoas is a muscle. I don't think it's a flexor. I don't think, you know, and I'd write articles and people would go, oh, what do you know? Which is true. I have no, I'm not in the therapy or health profession. So I'm a conceptual artist. I was a conceptual artist at the Boston Museum School of Fine Arts. And so I was talking about something else. I was talking about perception. I was talking about awareness. So I didn't know exactly, but slowly I got more and more clear. Well, then I met the embryological model. So in the embryological model, which is the scientific model of how human organisms and all organisms and mammals appear, there is a center of being. So when the cell begins its journey and divides and multiplies, it organizes around an axis of a field of energy. And that axis in the languaging of embryology is called the midline. And they've stopped using that word because people think of lines as being a thing, but it's actually a field. It's literally like the axis of the earth. It's something you, you can know it's there, but you can't see it. It's not a pole. And so this field of energy is what we uh, show up around and what we shape are shaped around. And so the organism, we're a spine-based organism, so all of us emerge out of this very core, including what's called the primal streak and then the Nordic cord and then what we think of as our central nervous system and what the average person thinks of as their spine. And so as grows out of that, you've got... So as now, not inserting into the 12th thoracic, like somebody, because I always ask people, who's inserted your psoas, but emerging out of this midline. So then I started calling it the messenger of the midline. Why do you use that language of messenger? Because it's not a thing. And it's, I mean, it's not a thing that you do something to. Well, you're not a thing that you do something to. So changing the language of body from object to process helps us understand ourselves very differently. And it takes us out of this, I want to say, a betrayal of ourselves as being somehow not meaningful so that somebody can't fix you. You actually are receiving these biointelligent messages. And what we need to do is know the language. And for those people who do work, as support for someone else, massage or body work therapist, they need to understand what the stories the psoas is telling. And then once they do, they're no longer, I think of it very much like a flower. You can't get a flower to blossom by massaging it, by trigger pointing it, manipulating it. You really support 
the expression or the flourishing of a flower by offering it the kind of support it needs. And, of course, each plant has a different field of energy that it flourishes in. You know, some need a lot of water, some need hardly any water, some need a lot of light. You know, so you're lurking the nuances of what does this organism need to really flourish. So I listen to those messages and I teach people who study with me what I have found those messages mean. What are those messages? What is the SOS telling us about? I'm really fascinated by all of this and you work with people one-on-one, and the way you sense what's going on in people, it sounds like you are intuitively tuning in to the core of other people's being through the core intelligence of your own being. And while I was reading this, I reflected back on my experience many years ago with Taoist energy healing when we would be sensing the qualities of the energy you know, along the meridians of the body. And I realized that most likely what I was experiencing was that intuitive sense through the core of my being because in the training of doing Taoist energy healing, we did a tremendous amount of chi generation work. That was the basis for all of that. And as a result of that, I got a very deep, visceral sense of what's called the Dantian. And because it's down in that core region of our body, very close to the psoas, I'm curious about your understanding of the relationship between those two and how they relate and if what I was sensing about my own past history resonates for you. The Taoist... I don't have the book in front of me, but one of the Taoist healers calls the psoas the muscle of the soul. And that became kind of popular, kind of mim going through the, the Facebook world, social world, and connected with my name. But I didn't start that. The Taoist did. And years ago, I read a book called Hara, and it meant a lot to me because it was one of the turning points where I kind of woke up from looking at body as object really understanding or affirming. I I think most of the stuff affirms what I already know, which is that I'm a living process, not a thing to fix. And so I started looking at people through that lens or that perspective that what I'm actually seeing is a living system in a process and in the embryological and also in the biomorphic, which is what we share with all living systems, is an expression of folding in or curling in and opening up or unfolding. And embryologically, it's a constant infolding. So the organism opens and then it gathers and it brings in and it opens and it gathers. So, for example, the primal tube, what we think of as our mouth to our anus, shows up in the field and then it's embedded or folded in. It's brought into the core. And so as I conceptually and somatically, I kept exploring this back and forth, I am very energetic in my orientation. It resonates with me, the elemental field of energy. And so I'm very comfortable in that world. And so the psoas is behind the navel. It's where the Dantian is thought to be located, and what the Dantian I understand partly to be is the 
place where all the fields of energy, what we call the cardinal planes, meet in the organism, like a center point, but not a point so much as a field, where all these things we think of as vertical and horizontal, right, left, front, back, top, bottom, all meet in ourselves. And when all of that comes together, there is a kind of awakening of the organism to truly be itself, to flourish, what I call flourishing, or other people call embodiment. And so cellage is right there. So it is messaging whether we are coherent or we're not coherent. And for coherency, a lot of times what people sense that as is, do I feel safe? Do I not feel safe? But as I kept exploring this, I began to realize that safety was inside. It wasn't outside. So the more I can sense that within myself, the situations I'm in or my experiences of life can be extraordinary in all different ways. But how I feel about them, how I experience them, whether I feel threatened by them or not, is actually within me. I'm really curious about the way we can sense the presence of psoas in our body I don't think I've ever really had a, a visceral sense of psoas, so I'm curious how we can sense the presence of psoas or feel its effects in our lives. You were just alluding to some of that, and how you sense the presence of the psoas in your life and in the work that you do. What I urge people to do is to recognize that the psoas, when healthy, is like trying to grab hold of a cloud or, you know, water in the palm of your hand. You know, it's elusive. It's actually a good thing that you don't sense your psoas. It means that you have a healthy psoas. It's very elusive. I think of it a lot like an organ of perception. And all our organs are something we normally go around sensing. But when something is wrong, they alert us. They give us information. You know, your stomach is aching. You go, wow, I ate something or... Something's wrong. I have a flu or, you know, food poisoning or, you know, whatever. You start analyzing what does the sensation mean? And the same, you know, like if your bladder hurts, you're like, hmm, maybe I have an infection. People don't go around sensing their psoas unless their psoas starts talking to them. And then for a lot of people, they try to shut it up. You know, they stretch it, they poke it, they try to do something to it because they see it as the problem. But what I tell people is the psoas is not the problem. So as is the messenger. So don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> and so I think it's a good thing you don't sense it. And the reason why I know mine is because I actually didn't connect to it, but I had a lot of pain when I was a young girl. I have a history of scoliosis, kyphosis, lordosis, probably some psychosis. In fact, I'm pretty much pretty sure I was analyzed. I go there too, you know. So I have a lot of osuses when I was young, and I didn't pay attention to any of them because I just assumed that's what life was. Pain was something that seemed like that's just what life is. But it was my interest in perception. So I really am interested in the awakening of perception. And so I found out that if you move, it changes the way you think and it changes the way you understand the world. And so I got intrigued by that, and I started looking for someone, and I met a man named Bob Cooley years ago in Boston, and I started going to his class. I could only handle about once a week, but he was focused on the psoas because 
coming from a dance background, he saw that most injuries were actually happening in the core, even though it seemed like it was your ankle, even though it seemed like it was your hip. It was actually the spine-based organism. And he didn't talk so much about that, but he understood. So he's really focused on the psoas in a sensory way. And I happened to spend about three years with him on the floor learning to sense myself. And as I kept coming into the sensory system and naming what I was sensing, giving it language, paying attention to what's actually called human potential at that time. Like, how does my awareness change the way I perceive myself and others and the world? As I kept playing with that, I kind of figured out, oh, I think this is so as because it started to get more lush and it started to get more responsive. And I would notice that when I did certain things, it got quiet. And so I didn't have so much pain in my hips or my back because there were times in my 20s where I couldn't get off the floor. I was, you know, like I had so much back pain that I had to be in what's called constructive rest position and no longer in pain and haven't been for years. But that's kind of what led me The pain didn't leave me there. The perceptual piece led me there. And then I went, oh, my goodness, look, I don't have to live with pain. Oh, this isn't normal. You know, I'm not stuck with this. All this is so fascinating. Back around the same time that I was training in body work and Taoist energy healing, neither of which I chose to practice. In fact, I chose to stay away from all quote-unquote healing modalities as I deeply distrusted the notion of healing others. And we used to spend, in this community that I was living in, we used to spend a lot of time on the floor in a position very, very close to what you called constructive rest position. And so much of what you describe in this book just reminded me of so much of the work that we were doing back then over 40 years ago. And All that stuff really laid a a wonderful foundation, which I've been integrating ever since. Because I was 19 when I moved into that community, and I had no idea what was going on or what I was doing or about anything, really. And what you said about movement affecting our thinking is so profound. And you, you talk a lot about fluid movement having the power to dissolve old conditioning. And in one line of yours, with no dismantling required, we simply allow fluid waves to spread through tissue and soften our old thought forms and outmoded patterns of behavior. That thoughts are literally shaped by movement. I would love for you to go more in depth into that. I already conceptually understood life as more of a biodynamic process and the elements playing a part in balance and rhythms of life. And all of that I spoke about in my second book, which is called Core Awareness, and how awareness changes the quality of tissue, the quality of our experience, the movement, and that rather than control, I believe that awareness is what brings us into relationship with ourselves and the world and life itself. So with that, I knew movement was really important. But when I watched people move, I saw the cultural, social, historical story being played out. And I knew that wasn't what I was looking for, that that isn't 
how a river flows. That's not how life shows up. That's an imprint on top of life of that we believe in and has different meanings to us as human beings. But partly humans didn't really do a lot for me early on, so I was really kind of more connected to maybe my farming roots through my ancestral farming roots of getting on the ground. So I think the ground is where we land and where we reconnect with ourselves through literally being a living organism. People kept telling me to go meet Emily Conrad. And, you know, I was kind of involved in my own stuff. And I did, yeah, yeah. But then somebody gave me an article and she was working with spinal cord completes. And she wasn't interested so much in healing, but she was interested in movement. And she said, if you want to understand movement, work with somebody who can't move. You're going to learn a lot. And so she was working with people who we think of as paraplegic. And she was regrowing spines. So I said, okay, I'm going to go see her. And I happened to jump into a workshop where she was at Mount Madonna in California. And I was with a lot more advanced students even though this was my first time with her. But I jumped right in, and she took me through a portal into the fluid system. Like, I don't know anybody who's able to do that. But because that had become her understanding of what she would call the three anatomies, being one of them a cosmic anatomy, meaning that all life is touched by fluid, whether it's the cosmos, the earth, or our living system. And when we go into that field of the fluid, we re-enter, we we go pre-developmental, we go pre-nervous system. And I just, to me, it was like coming home. It was, this is what I'm looking for. And it doesn't have, you're not imitating a look. You're not imitating a shape. And yes, people who practice her work imitate her. And so there's a lack of authenticity a lot of times. But if you watch someone who really has embodied this capacity to enter the fluid system, you'll watch an organism like a sea creature that we re-enter that ability to let fluid move us, not the other way around. I'm not moving. I'm being moved. And the moment I'm being moved, and some people feel that through poetry or through music vibrational fields. It's not like this is the only portal, but it is a portal into a biological capacity to be reshaped as a human and to lose our cultural story. And I say it in the book, Emily's one of her statements is that when you get below that historical, social understanding of being human and you go into this biological world, the slime is still moving. And that meant a lot to me. I really understood that. That really landed in me as an understanding that this is where the wealth of my capacity lies. This is where my nourishment is going to be found because I don't think it's found in the social cultural world. Not that I don't enjoy things. I go to New York and spend time with all things human. But that's not where the deeper layers of my being belong. They belong to the earth. I'm made of the elements of the earth. And so there's something really beautiful about one getting on the floor or getting on the earth, literally, and letting it hold you, what I call grounding or landing and locating. And the other is this movement. It applies really well to the psoas because the psoas is the filet mignon. 
It's the juiciest cut of meat we eat in an animal. And I was fortunate to have people like, you know, a Boston butcher in a workshop one time when we talked to us. And, you know, what I started to kind of recognize is that we're looking at this very fluid, elusive tissue that can be shaped in some other way. It can be used. It can be recruited. So for many dancers, their psoas is like steel cording, you know, but to the animal body, it's this fluid messenger. It's the deepest layer of connective tissue. It's embodied in this deepest bag of connective tissue, spinal cord, psoas, kidneys, adrenal. It's all about both surviving and thriving. So that's why I think the fluid piece is so important because the minute you start to hydrate, you start to access this intelligence like the river. If it's in a canal, you know, the river starts to die. When the river can spread, can move, can undulate, can make those beautiful undulation movements as it heads to the longing for the ocean, there's this ability to go into the wetlands. And when we enter the wetlands of ourselves, there is nourishment, just as the the wetlands is this rich, thriving environment of diversity and possibilities. And so all of a sudden, creativity starts to emerge out of our own organisms. I'm talking with Liz Cook. She's an international educator and the author of this fascinating book that we're talking about, Stalking Wild Soas. This is so beautiful and so fascinating, this correlation between the way rivers move and and function in the environment and how that correlates to what's going on at a primal level inside of our bodies. Yeah. And what you were just talking about, about wetlands. Wetlands require that rivers be allowed to just flow naturally and at their own pace so that the water has the chance to sink into the earth. Yeah. And in our modern world, we're manipulating most of the rivers for our own agendas and without understanding the effects that that's having on the environment locally and expanding out globally. Yeah. And we're having the same issues within our own bodies, within our own lives, in our own beings. And I was utterly fascinated by hearing the stories that you told about working with individuals who came to you with problems. And you said that you don't work in the healing field And yet the work, at least some of the work that you describe, is exactly what I call real healing, or what I think of as the most meaningful healing, where you're just helping to facilitate other people in finding their own natural self-organizing and self-healing capacities that already exist deep within us. Right. I would love for you to talk more about how all of that works and contrast that a bit with the way that even people in the alternative healing communities work with that and and see that whole healing dynamic. I kind of feel what I heard you say, which is that you weren't really attracted to that, and I'm not attracted to that. And I can say I have friends who are healers, 
and I know for sure I am nothing like them. I have no impulse to rescue someone else, to fix them, to heal them. I don't look at people that way. I don't see what they need or they don't need. I don't evaluate human beings that way at all. So I'm not saying I'm opposed to going to someone who can hold that kind of space, but at the same time, I have a keen sense that the majority of people who have the impulse, unless they're, you know, I'll trade the indigenous people's way of healing, but the Western world of healing is usually made up of people who feel broken. And it's in the psychological world as well as the physical world. So I I understand how people get there. Something really helped them. They learned a lot about it. Now they have all these skills. What do you do with it? You help other people. You pass it on. That is kind of a cultural way of doing things. But I'm not very invested in any of that. So what I discovered about myself was that I really, I didn't have any impulse to do any of that. But it's also made it a very rich opportunity to hone my ability to kind of hold space because I don't have any impulse to do anything. And so I don't interfere. I don't have any impulse to interfere. And so my style of being who I am kind of fits with what I do really well and actually with being a parent as well. So, you know, I really believe that the organism knows what it needs. So my strategy is what is interfering? That's what I'm always asking people in my workshops to ask themselves, to not try to do something right. So I don't call what I do exercises. I call them explorations because they're not about doing something right, which is a mechanical model. If I do this right, then this will be the result of that. Whereas I'm looking for what interferes with an organism that is self-organizing, self-writing, self-healing. What I mean by self-healing is as simple as when I cut myself, I'm either going to bleed out, get infected, or I'm going to heal. And I might know some strategies like cleaning the wound, maybe putting a Band-Aid on to stop bleeding, but I don't know how I heal. Healing is the phenomena of life. It's the recapitulation of life. So all I can do is become very aware of what supports or stops inhibiting what my organism actually knows how to do. So I really believe in that intelligence of life, in all life, in every organism that is a living organism, and even ones that we don't think are maybe living. They're all touched by water, which is one of the main things, is all life is shaped by water. And that's why the fluid system is so interesting. And they all share certain common biomorphic expressions. So when we play... I'd like to play a lot. Um, When I play in this biomorphic expression, like a curl, like curling and uncurling, not so much like doing it as mechanically, but actually noticing that my tissue actually does that and then giving it room and space and attention to watch it do it, I'm actually using my cortex then to turn towards my own intelligence and noticing. So it's not a mindfulness. It's a consciousness of awareness that these things are always going on and I don't pay attention to them. That's the somatic piece. All of a sudden I'm noticing that my, even my toes might curl and uncurl spontaneously. Kind of like, you know, like an octopus has tentacles. So 
I start to notice these things myself, and I actually create meaning around that. In other words, I believe that there's the allowing of some of this to take, to show up, actually offers us a kind of fertile territory of possibilities. And the more possibilities I have, that's associated with health. The more diversity in my own system, the healthier I am, the more I can have resiliency and the more responsive I am, the more porous I am, the more responsive I am. So they're, they're biodynamic. They're the same as composted since I was a little girl. I learned to compost when I was five years old. You know, I, I understand that when you do certain things, magic happens and you end up with what seemed like garbage ends up incredibly rich earth. And we can allow that to happen within our bodies and all aspects of our being. Because we're made up of those elements. We are those elements. Right, but we just, we have to get out of the way and allow ourselves, allow our beings, our bodies, and what's going on inside of us to unfold in those natural ways as opposed to always having an outward or even even an inward agenda. Right, and that's the big thing, because when you learn a skill to help heal someone else, you want to apply it. And that's a natural response. It's okay, I have this skill. Like, how can I use it here? How can I use it there? And I don't have a lot of skill in that way. I have no training, and I don't believe in school. I mean, I went to school because I was, you know, sent there. But I studied about different ways people learn to try to uncondition myself or to dissolve some of the conditioning that I felt. So I've always been interested in it. And so what I began to realize that it's the lack of what I don't have that gives the space to allow the intelligence to come forward. So I'm holding space for someone. And yes, I've attuned slowly, begrudgingly. I I have opened up my capacity to pick up information, kind of like reading a poem. Things show up. And then what I do is hand that back to the person. I don't actually know what it all means. I don't try to analyze it. I'm just, this is what shows up for me. I mean, sometimes what shows up is, you know, a torn ligament. Um, So messages of the psoas are often skeletal, our disconnect from our bones, our lack of being grounded on the earth, of really feeling ourselves deep within our own bones. And so that can be something as simple as the shoe that's put on you as a little kid, the car seat that you're sitting in, but it can also be all kinds of other connections with birth and our birth story and the experiences that we've had. So that's part of it. But that leads back to this nervous system that informs us and shapes us. And so grounding to the earth is what shapes us. So Bones develop in the ocean, but then they're shaped by gravity. So that's why the shoe you put on a little kid changes the way they walk or understand what walking is or experience walking fully or not. So that changes their experience. So those are adaptations that interfere. So I look at what's interfering. And then the other is, what is it? How do we know what we don't know that we don't know? So it's not just what did happen to us or our experience that we've had, but all the experiences we've never had that may have nourished us. And so what nourishes us? And that's where I think play, these kind of explorations on the floor, give us an access to a kind of molecular memory 
that is beyond our time and space, that informs us in ways that is what maybe is called the morphic field, is a field of information that is beyond our personal experience. And that became really intriguing to me because it starts to nourish me in ways that I personally was not nourished in that way. You know, it was kind of a failure to thrive child. So all of a sudden, I'm feeling all this lushness and this support and this way of being on the earth that is not my personal story, but it feeds me. I would love for you to talk more about that. We're just so overly conditioned in our lives and to allow ourselves to sink way down to those levels, even below anything that we can conceive of and how it can affect us in in the way that you described that affecting you. I would love for you to talk more deeply about that. Well, I think that the conditioning is the entrapment. So that's the cultural, historical story of conditioning that we believe is who and what we are. And that begins in the womb. You know, it's kind of what happens. But I got to meet people who have supported what I sense is this, you know, well, the physicists are, you know, talking about field work. And so they talk about, you know, how energy and water, you know, water is a conduit of energy or electrical impulses. So we can enter this biological realm, but we can also enter into the field realm of where things are shaped by a field of energy or information. So when we're we're shaped in the womb, we're marinating in our mother's experience, but not only her experience, but her genetic You could say the history, the DNA of all of that. So that gets into these layers of information that you could focus on one of them, but they're all kind of showing up for me in various ways. So as I started to not identify myself as an object, but started to understand, experience myself, it's actually experiencing myself, and then you get the understanding, as these energy flows, which you mentioned as, you know, in acupuncture or Chinese medicine, you're looking at what we call meridian flows. But these different kind of fields of information, it's like a radio station in a way. You can turn in and all of a sudden you're listening to a radio station you never heard before. And you're like, oh, wow, okay, what's going on here? You know, and so there's curiosity. Well, what I notice about curiosity is that you can only be curious when you're actually thriving when you're in what's called the parasympathetic, when you have a ebb and a flow, like the river meandering. When we're in a kind of sympathetic response, which is more a survival response, then the capacity for creativity, for curiosity, is now depleted. And so there isn't a lot of... That's like putting the water in a channel that's going straight to, you know water the golf course. You know, there isn't a lot of meandering there. There's not a lot of curiosity. And so the organism isn't actually utilizing or thriving. So I really started playing with how does tissue 
how do we create fertile land within ourselves? How do we build the capacity for diversity? How do I become a more thriving organism? And a lot of it is being connected to all that is living. So literally putting my belly to the ground, literally putting my spine to the tree, literally just sitting under the stars and feeling and hearing and being, just being. So cell is being tissue. It's not about doing something. So the impulse to do is very strong in us because of our cultural belief in the work ethic. You have to go and learn something. You have to go and work. And all of those mindsets is a conditioning that can deconstruct. You you have to decolonize your mind Mm. to be able to wake up Mm -hmm. to something else. Yeah, that's been an important theme that I've been working with for years, that notion of decolonizing our mind, freeing our mind. And you talk about spending time in darkness or the unknown or the mystery, which also could be correlated to journeying into the underworld Mm -hmm. so that we can actually invest ourselves or move into that space where we can actually incubate or gestate natural self-reorganization and allowing all those old inhibitors, all that old conditioning to dissolve so that we can actually like reemerge new. And I would love for you to talk more about how that dissolving occurs because you say that it doesn't require any effort on our part or any agenda on our part. I mean I I would imagine that having going in with with a certain kind of an intention uh, a less mechanistic intention could help with that, but I would just love for you to talk about how we can support ourselves and nourish ourselves into that kind of space in those ways. Well, space is important, I think. One of the people who reviewed the book, Bayal Akamolfi, says, you know, the times are urgent, slow down. I like that phrase a lot. So... So the idea is to slow down and to create space where you can do nothing. And do nothing isn't sitting with a beer in front of the television. It's like where you're actually turned towards getting on the floor or what I recommend for people is first thing in the morning, roll into fetal curl, which is just rounding the spine. Because you're, you're returning to the fetal curl. You're actually bringing the story back around to the beginning. And just that act, just that gesture, just that expression provides an opportunity to go back towards yourself, which is a biomorphic expression like animals curl up and plants curl up and rivers kind of curl on themselves and create little jetties and little whirlpools. The curling is a return, and the return is an invitation to recapitulate, to rediscover something, to come back through and out whole. And these aren't new ideas. These are ancient ideas that were used in the Asclepian 
temples in Greece and stuff where people didn't, the healers weren't healers. They created space where people came and dreamed. And the dream revealed what they needed and what these people did that were holding the space helped interpret the dream. But the dream was yours. And so the intelligence is yours. And so you're returning. And so just something as simple as upon waking, going into this curl for a moment and simply allowing whatever shows up. It's like a call and response. I shape the gesture and then I create this open space in myself to allow whatever wants to show up. That's the invitation to inform me. And from that may come movement, may come a creative idea or an epiphany or a remembering of something. It may come as a feeling quality. It can be all of those. Depends where we, you know, where our attention flows to. And out of that comes the beginning of the day. I spend every morning I can curling up in the way that you're describing <laughs> and doing just that, just opening up space to just sink into that space of possibility. And I remember when I was younger thinking that that was a bit self-indulgent, that I should get up and, and actually do something. But now, whenever I can, I'll spend hours in bed, curled up in that way. It's like gestating. It's like being a baby again and allowing anything to emerge or to just be without even needing anything to emerge. That's right. It's just being. We have a right to be. That's our birthright. Our birthright is we're beings. And that's all we are. And but being pretty amazing, amazing adventure. Yeah. And there's so much pleasure and joy in that. Yes, yeah, so tracking pleasure is key because what people I, I realize that you know we learn this very early, like in school when you know you're looking at something and you have to tell the teacher or put on the paper what's wrong with this picture versus this picture. We are trained to look for what's wrong. Our culture teaches us to look for what's wrong, to recognize what's not the pattern. And my brain is shaped that way, to look for what's wrong. So then you want to fix it. And if you have skills in fixing, then you want to apply those skills. And yet, that's a way of being conditioned. So when you start to dissolve that and you just go into this being space, different than meditation because you're not trying to achieve anything. There is no achievement here. There's no goal. There's simply being. There is the ability for things to start to happen. And there's a percolation in that gestation. And, you know, sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. But when there is, that starts to be really invigorating and nourishing and creative juices start to flow. Arrows and the pleasure the pleasure of being starts to really allow us to flourish as human beings, to really think about things differently, to come up with great creative ideas, to be more available. So the benefits are quite wonderful. And earlier you used this 
wonderful term that has become a touchstone for me, and that is portal. That when we allow ourselves to fully be in that space of just being, a portal opens up to what we could consider to be or call infinite creative possibility. Yes. And that's that bio-intelligence. We enter that field. We enter that which is what created us in the first place, mm-hmm. or how we became. Yes. And there's a wonderful quote in the book from Nikola Tesla where he says, in the universe there's a core from which we obtain knowledge, strength, and inspiration. I have not penetrated into the secrets of this core, but I know that it exists. <laughs> what you're talking about exists, we can access it from within us, but it also exists at this universal level. And it seems that by us allowing ourselves to sink into that space of just being, we can access the universal. Yeah, we're all of it. That's what's so beautiful. It's not either or, it's all of it. And going back to Emily's work with this idea, one of the things that fluid in particular, so movement, allowing the fluid movement of tissue uh, rather than locking down the density, uh, the lack of movement, or the mechanistic movement. So the average person is very mechanistic in their movement. They go to fitness classes and they learn more mechanistic ways of controlling the core. And so then the core becomes this column and it becomes this object in which you're getting core steel or you're getting a strong core. All these concepts around locking ourselves down is actually creating more density in the system. When we go the other way and we recognize that resiliency, water is one of the most resilient capacities to move mountains, when we become a resilient, where the river of life is literally the center of our being, then all of a sudden, through the fluid system, you access your own being, you access all living systems on the earth, and you become as fluid from the cosmos, you start accessing a wider band of information that goes into a much larger consciousness of all life. Water as a vehicle of information. Yeah, it's a conduit. It's a conduit of, it's a vibration of, I mean, to me, it is the intelligence. You know, the intelligence is is in the fluid of my tissue. And when my tissue becomes more fluid, not only do I become healthier and more resilient, and my capacity for strength increases, and you know, all systems are functioning really well. So one of the things I learned early on in terms of physical health was that you could do functional movement to the day you die, and it will keep you in a certain way, but it won't open the system up. Whereas if you do biological, what I call biological expression, these innate primal responses that are these little ebbs and flows, these little allowing, you know, like the tongue to the tail, actually talk to each other. That all of a sudden, as we enter this relationship with fluid and be informed by fluid and our consciousness starts to pick up on this other waves of information, all of a sudden, anything you do that's a functional level increases. You're you're a much more functional human being. So it's not an either-or. 
it's that one nourishes the other. Functional movement does not nourish biological expression, and we're all living that right now as a human species. But the functional industrial world is not going to keep us healthy here on Earth. And it's not going to solve the problems that it has created, right? right? I'm talking with Liz Cook. She's an international educator and the author of this fabulous new book, Stalking Wild Soas, Embodying Your Core Intelligence. And this is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. I'm reading another book for another interview, and there's a quote in it from Bruce Lee, the famous martial artist. Mm-hmm. And he essentially, he says, become like water. Yes, love that. Be water, my friend. Yes, that's like the essence of his, his teaching. Yeah, but because that's where strength actually comes from. That's where the martial artist is riding that wave of energy that's flowing through that allows you to let the energy move the other person. You're not moving. Yet. The flow of energy is moving and you get out of the way. You know, and so it's this idea of being moved. And I, I love that, being moved. I mean, don't we all want to be moved by our lives? You know, when we're touched or moved by something, it feels really, really deeply nourishing and, you know. If only we could just let go of, of insisting upon wanting to be moved in very specific ways. Well, and that goes back to the quote from my book that you started with, which is this idea that we don't need to deconstruct. I mean, things will deconstruct, but actually we will be moved. You know, life is bigger than we are, so we will be moved. So that which doesn't flow with the biological world will be moved, but maybe not in the way we'd like to be. Right. The dandelions will push up through the concrete. Yes, that is, you know, dandelions are, are notorious weeds, and yet they are one of the most healing plants for the skin. So you could think of it as the skin of the earth, that they are coming to heal the skin of the earth. And allowing the decomposition of, of all the things that we've sort of scabbed over the earth, overlaid, yeah. and preventing the water from flowing and from expressing itself in its most primal and natural ways. That's right. Which we know, like you said, you know, goes into the aquifer. So there's a regenerative, restorative dimension to all of us, to all living systems that we can either participate with or not. When we participate with it, there's this incredibly rich interaction. And there's a quote in the book from Roland McCready, as more and more individuals become increasingly self-regulated and grow in conscious awareness, the increased individual coherence in turn increases social coherence, which is reflected in increased cooperation and effective co-creative initiatives for the benefit of society and the planet. A shift in consciousness is necessary to achieve new levels of cooperation and collaboration in the kind of innovative problem-solving and intuitive discernment required for addressing our social, environmental, and economic problems. And we're at this place in our lives 
in history on this planet where we really have serious things to deal with and the old approach isn't going to get us there. No, it's time for a new paradigm. The Industrial Revolution is over and so we no longer have to think of ourselves as an object that needs to be fixed. One of the things with the objectification of body is that it takes somebody else to fix you. You know, it's like your car. You know, unless you're a good mechanic, you're going to take it to somebody else to be fixed. And so you're dependent on, you know, somebody else figuring out what's wrong and then giving you the right tools or doing it for you. Whereas as a biological organism, as a process of life, the intelligence, the sovereignty, the capacity for self-actualization is actually within you. And you are participating in a larger process. But... It's very hopeful because when people say to me, do you think my spine can change? Do you think, you know, and I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, wow, you are really under this belief system that you're an object because if you understood, like, it's inevitable that things will change. So how do we want to play with that? You know, it's going to change. But how it changes in me specifically is about recognizing that a cell is a momentary aspect of a metabolic or energetic process. We are not objects. We are literally, as Yap Vanderval, the embryologist, says, you know, you are not made up of cells. You aren't constructed. You utilize cells to become. We're here for a reason. We utilize cells to become, to become ourselves to become fully this energy body who is now in a form and flowing with all the other energies here. And do I understand all that? I don't. But I do get that this objectification piece interferes with my ability to really show up here. And I think how we arrived here does shape us. So I'm really interested playing with all of that right now with a woman named Anna Verval who has looked at you know, the womb to world, the journey that shapes our life, because I recognize that if we arrived and we felt the earth and we heard, you know, the birds were singing to us, how different we would understand ourselves than arriving in the industrial complex that we call the birth complex, in which we disempower women, we deliver you, because you have to be delivered, <laughs> um, and your first bonding is with plastic and machines. It is literally changing the human species. What Michelle O'Dont called the hormones of love. When a woman is given synthetic hormones, she does not produce the hormones of love. It's a pretty big, awesome thing that what the Industrial Revolution has done to the human species. And now... The reckoning has come, right? And so how do we want to participate in a different way of being? And as we kind of rejoin ourselves as a living organism, as we start to connect with ourselves as a living expression of life, we can begin to have creative ideas. And that's what you're saying happens when you go into that kind of pausing, uh, slowing down, connecting in. All of a sudden, new ideas start to show. So, you know, can we have permeable walkways, you know, driveways? Yeah, we can that allow both things to happen. 
you know, the ability to move around and also the ability for the earth to reabsorb water. These ideas are there. They're available to us. The creativity is huge. But that's what we are. We are creative. Mm-hmm. And this whole story is just so fascinating and the tragedies of our industrial way of life up against it. Reading your book just gave me so much joy and I immediately thought of so many people that I know who are aspiring to this worldview, this view of of beingness and this entering into the possibility of living in a completely new way of perceiving and relating and just being in a totally new way. I'm so incredibly grateful for this book. I enjoyed it immensely. It was so unexpected. Ah, great. That's what I wanted. And my intention in writing it was, I don't need to keep hearing the old story. I really wanted, I wanted the book to be dreamed into being with all that creativity, all that hope that creativity brings to us that life brings to us. And so that was my intention. So I'm glad it landed in that way in you. It sure did. And I can feel it nourishing me. I can feel it growing in me. And I can feel it reinforcing things that I've been learning throughout my life in a healthy and nourishing way. Yeah, playfulness. Remembering how to play again. Right, just opening up and allowing energy to move. Yeah. It's simple, and yet often in our highly colonized and industrial world, the simplest things are, are the hardest things to allow ourselves to, to enter into. Yeah, the work ethic is pretty strong. You know, it doesn't take everybody. And you get a group of people together like I do, and, you know... Sometimes I do feel like I'm kind of moving through a cement wall or something. And yet, you know, even cement is moved by water. So it's very interesting, very interesting to allow ourselves to be moved. And it doesn't take big movement. It's little micro-movement. It's the ability to not have to do something. It's not a work. It's a play. And it's not about what it looks like from the outside. It's what it feels like from the inside. Yeah. So I would love for you to talk about the resources that you offer and the work that you do around the world and how people can tap into what you have to offer. Well, thanks. Well, I have a website, coreawareness.com. And on that website, there's a lot of free information. So there's articles, there's videos, and there's short videos. And there's podcasts and interviews, and so there's an array of ways to enter into the conversation depending on things that people are interested in, what intrigues you, and so that's an offering. And then I teach workshops. I teach very basic SOAS workshops for communities of people who just are entering conversation or they're trying to figure out how to solve a problem maybe somebody they're working with has said, you know, I think it's your SOAS, and they go on and Google and they find me. Other people come because they really are looking to shift the paradigm. And so if people come for all different reasons, 
And so I offer different kind of workshops, and then I offer things like stalking wild psoas that's process-oriented. So in other words, instead of gathering more information, we start to really digest, and more than even digest, assimilate what's going on inside of us. And then as that lands in us, then that actually is what shapes the workshop. So I may start a movement such as the curl, and then we take that and we see where it goes. And so they are all very different because of who shows up and what we're working with. And they're not processed in the sense of trying to figure it out or trying to let go of the trauma. I really believe if everybody unpacked all their trauma, who would you be? I don't really think that's the issue. I think the traumatic response is something, but at the same time, the nourishment piece is how we actually assimilate these experiences that we have. And so I try to work in a very playful way of moving in simple, simple ways that allow us, you don't have to have any skill, you can work at a really small level or it can start to grow bigger. It has a lot of individuality to it. I'm not a person who follows directions very well, so I don't teach in that way. I'm not looking to impose anything. I'm looking to evoke, to support, and to be playful in a way that offers the person an opportunity to discover something within themselves. And I don't know what that will be, so I don't have the answer. And out of that comes other layers. So now I'm starting to teach what I call rewilding. And there may be only one day where people can just come in and do movement that doesn't have a direction. It doesn't have a purpose. There's nothing you're trying to acquire. It's an open-ended exploration that simply is a way of starting to find that space, starting to slow down, starting to invite not even something new, but what is already there to just be. And there's online classes, too. So for people who want the conceptual understanding of this work, you can take an online class with me. And Yeah. I was wondering if we could end by you talking about your snake dream. (laughs) (laughs) My snake dream. Well, I dreamed the book. So I spent the first month doing nothing. You know, no uh, Netflix, no reading Facebook, no doing anything that would bring in new information. I just wanted to create this landscape, this sense of space, this womb in which something could gestate. And so I slept when I was tired. I ate when I was hungry. I spent a lot of time on the ground. I just allowed myself to dream. And in that dream, there was some dreams. And one of the dreams that showed up was a dream in which I was with a small group of people and I spotted a snake. And I was curious about it, but I was also fearful of it. I know that the snake is a powerful symbol. It's associated with arrows. So intellectually, I'm also having all these epiphanies, you know, while I'm dreaming as well. But nevertheless, there's a real snake there in my dream. And I thought, I can't, I can't follow it. It's moving kind of, you know, I can't control it. I can't follow it. It's going to disappear. And it shows up on a, like a dog bed. You know, it's sitting with a dog. And I'm like, oh, oh, God, is it going to eat the dog? Is the dog going to get in a fight with it? What's going to happen? It was like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how the story's going to end. I don't know how the book's going to show up. 
And then I catch it again. It's gone again. And I'm asking people, do you see this thing? Would you? Can you help me follow this thing? And all of a sudden it shows up and it goes into the cage and closes the door and looks me right in the eye. And I wake up. So what I chose to do with the story of the dream was to go back into it and just asking the conversation with the snake. And so the piece that really showed up for me, because I didn't know if that was symbolic of like, you know, as much as I think I want to be this free person, do I really want that? Could I really, you know, I don't know if I could live a tribal life. You know, I have no idea if I could do that. You know, I'm domesticated. I know I'm domesticated. So I don't know what I would do. I was left on my own in the wild woods, you know. So I felt like a lot of it had to do with this era of, did I want to kind of control it in some way? Did I want to control the wild? Could I really let myself? And wild was a word that kept coming up because I literally looked at it as a dictionary about, you know, we have such negative words for what wild means. You know, so when I started talking about stalking the wild so as people are like, ooh, you know, and so we don't know what the wild is. And I felt like that was the symbology of the snake. And if you want to know the conversation I had with the snake, you'll have to read the book. <laughs> Liz Cook is the author of this fabulous new book that we've been talking about, Stalking Wild Soas, Embodying Your Core Intelligence. And again, her website is coreawareness.com, where you can discover new ways of understanding the SOAS through her videos, articles, podcasts, and interviews. And Liz, thank you so much. This has been a delicious, delicious conversation. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you as well. Thank you for having me on. It's been such a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.